right, folks, we're in Lesson 5 today. We're going we're to be looking today specifically at the second letter, which starts off in Chapter 2, Verse 8, and goes through Verse 11. So let's look at those verses together, and we will talk about what we're reading here. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Okay, before we look at this letter, I just want to remind you of a couple of things. It is, it is my view, my position, and I think even as we read this letter, that these letters do not represent, like some folks believe that they represent different ages in the church age, different periods in the church age. I think you're really stretching it if you hold that view. Because the reality is, is this letter was written to seven churches that is the, the revelation, was written to seven churches, actual churches, in Asia Minor. And to say that they represent seven periods in the church age, that, they wouldn't even comprehend that. They, so when you're reading this letter, and specifically when you're reading this letter in Smyrna, Jesus is saying to them, look guys, something is about to happen. Some of you are going to be thrown into prison. But endure. Persevere. So this letter was written for that church. Now you say, now what is, it, what is it for us? Well, what we do is we come later and we look at it and we, we read the principles and we understand what it is that the passage is trying to tell us and we try to apply it, first of all, to our church because it's a letter to a church and then, second of all, to our lives in general. So let's look at what's going on here. So first of all, the destination. Paul addressed the letter to the pastor of the church in Smyrna. Now again, the word angel there, our English translations and the, and the history of it goes all the way back to Wycliffe. John Wycliffe, who translated, was the first translator of the English Bible, is the Greek word is angelos, which means messenger, so they translated it to mean angel. And that's a good translation. But what we do is when we read that, we think in terms of heavenly angels. The reality is, is that angels don't need letters. Jesus doesn't send, need to send them a letter. He can talk to them and tell them what to do. The reality is, is that if we look at this letter, the better context is, is to the messenger of that church, which in reality is the pastor. So he's addressing this letter to the pastor in the church of Smyrna. Now let me tell you about the church of Smyrna a little bit. Smyrna was a seaport city, and it was very wealthy. It was noted for emperor worship. So one of the things about Smyrna was it was the center of worshiping whoever the emperor was. And a refusal to worship the emperor brought some martyrdom to some of the Christians there. So when you've refused to worship the emperor, you ended up getting killed. Now as most of our letters, let's continue on in verse 8 there, 
Jesus then, after really telling who the letter is for, he then goes on and he says who, he, who it is that's speaking to them. So he gives a description of himself. So notice what it says there. These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. So he's going to say two things about himself here. First of all, he proclaims himself as the eternal one who has always existed. Jesus is proclaiming himself here as the first and the last. So what's he talking about? That he's eternal. He's the eternal one. He's always existed. Another way in this letter he will describe himself as the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega. And basically when you think about that, that's, that's the, first, the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. Alpha is the first, Omega is the last. That would be like saying, I'm the A and Z in our, in our culture. Basically, he's it. He's totality. He is totally the eternal one. Okay? So he goes on then, and he describes himself as this. He proclaims himself as the resurrected one. Christ experienced death and defeated it with his resurrection. Christ experienced death and defeated it with his resurrection. So he proclaims himself as the resurrected one. Now, this is very important. I want you to understand something. When he gives these titles to each of these seven churches, remember last week when we looked at this, he was talking to the church at Ephesus. And with the church at Ephesus, he said he's the one who what? Holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And we know from the last verse of chapter 1 that the seven stars are what? The seven pastors of those churches. And the seven golden lampstands are those churches. And so what is he saying? He's saying, I hold them in my right hand. And in the Bible, the right hand is always with reference to authority. So he's saying, I hold these pastors. I have authority over these pastors. So he's talking about his authority in the church. And then he's saying, I'm dwelling in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He's dwelling in the midst of those churches. So for that church, Ephesus, they needed to know who was in control and that it was his presence that was in their midst. Now with this church, he wants them to know, I'm the eternal one. I've always existed. And he also wants them to know, I died and was raised again. I'm the resurrected one. So this is very important for this church, and we're going to see how it's important as we go down through here and look at what's being said. Now, Remember, I told you that there's a division to these letters. So there's, there's letters to who it's from. The next part is a commendation. So he's going to say, what are the good things that they're doing? Then, with a lot of these letters, the next part after that is a condemnation. That's where he is rebuking them for whatever it is they're doing wrong. Then there's an exhortation. What do they need to do? And then he finally wraps it up with an encouragement that is a promise of what is there for those who persevere in their faith. So let's look at what the commendation is. What is it they're doing good? First of all, verse 9, he makes this statement in every one of the letters. Look at what it says, verse 9, know your works. Christ has an intimate knowledge of the church. Now let's stop there for a moment because I think that's a point that all of us are going to need to grasp here. Nothing is hidden from Jesus. Period. Throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament especially, 
over and over and over, the emphasis is there that nothing is done that God does not know. He goes on and you know, he'll say things like this, that which is done in secret will be brought to light. So you think you're doing something, nobody else may know about it, and you think that's it, okay, I'm okay, because nobody else knows about it. That's not true. There is someone who knows about it. Jesus knows about it. He is very much aware of what's going on in our churches. He is very much aware of what's going on in our lives. You can't hide anything from him. Period. So here's what he's saying to this church. I know everything about you and what's going on in the midst of your church. Now, that can be a comforting thing or that can be a scary thing. Bottom line. Do you understand what I'm saying? The reality that knowing that Jesus knows everything about what's going on in your life can be a comforting thing or it can be a scary thing. Now, you say, how can it be comforting? Well, for this church, for instance, they're going to be going through persecution. They're going to be going through some struggles. They're going through some hard times. And so the reality of knowing Jesus is saying to you, I know what's going on. That can be a comforting thing because a lot of times when you go through problems, the first response is what? God, do you even know what's going on? Here he's saying, I know it. Now, it can be a scary thing because if you're not doing right, we can delude ourselves, can't we? The delusion that we, we, we can deceive ourselves with is that we think that, you know, hey, I can get away with that one. God probably doesn't know. Well, no, he does know. There's nothing hidden from him. And so that's what we're seeing here. So he's going to commend them. So he says, look, I know everything about you guys. I have an intimate knowledge of the church. So here's what he commends them for. First of all, tribulation. He knows that they are suffering extreme persecution. He knows that they are suffering extreme persecution. This is something we don't understand in our country because we don't have to deal with it. We have slight persecution in our country. I believe at some point it may get more extreme. But the reality is, is that we don't truly understand this. And so Jesus is saying to this church, in particular Smyrna, I know what you're suffering. I know the extreme persecution that you're undergoing. But here's not only, this isn't the only problem they have. Christ knows that they're living in extreme poverty. Extreme poverty. The city may have been wealthy, but the believers in that city were not. And, you know, one of the things is, you know, in, in our culture, and I know because I'm guilty of this, we live to eat. You know what I mean by that? We live to eat because maybe you're here and you're already thinking about, man, hope we have good service, but what's for lunch? I, I got that craving today. You know, what's, what's for lunch? That's living to eat. We, that, that's the Western mindset, Western culture. In a place like this, the attitude is you eat to live. Period. You eat to live. So if you have a meal that day, you eat so you can live. That's what poverty is. And this church right here was going through extreme poverty. Now, here's what he's telling them. He knows that they are suffering at the hands of religionists. Now, in their case specifically, 
it was the hands of Jews, of those who were from the synagogue. And so he says, I know you're, you're undergoing some extreme suffering at the hands of those who are religionists, those who, are, who want to focus on religion rather than, than God. And so he wants them to understand their extreme poverty. Now, you don't have it there. I'll, I'll tell you what it is. Christ reminds them that they are rich in spite of their present condition. Even though you might be in a circumstance where you are going through poverty, and I don't think we're going through poverty in our country, I'll just be honest with you. But if you, even though you might be in an extreme situation, he says to them, don't focus on your poverty, focus on the reality that you are rich spiritually, and there is an inheritance for you later on. You know, every time I go to Haiti, and I've done this three times now as far as teaching at the pastor's conference, I am always asked to teach through the book of Revelation. And I'm like, you know, there's, there's other books of the Bible. Why do you guys always want me to teach from this book? Well, I know why. They're going through extreme poverty and extreme persecution. They want to know what's waiting for them beyond here. They want a hope to hold on to in the midst of what's going on. Do you understand what I'm saying? They live differently than we do, folks. I'm just being honest with you. Their focus is beyond this life to somewhere else. This is what Jesus is saying to this church. He reminds them that even in spite of their persecution and their poverty, they're rich. There's something more for them. And then the next point is, is that he knows that they're suffering at the hands of religionists. Now, here's the interesting thing. With most of the churches, there's a rebuke. With most of the church, there's a rebuke. Notably is the fact that Christ did not rebuke them. So here's this church. This is one of the few churches of the seven churches where he's saying, look, he commends them. But he doesn't have anything bad to say about them. Isn't that an interesting thing? This is one church where when he's looking at them, he's saying, yeah, man, I, I appreciate this and I appreciate that about you, but I can't find anything wrong with you. Isn't that interesting? That blows my mind. Because if you've been around church for a while, and, it, and I've been around church for, I've been a Christian now for 25 years, so I've been in a lot of different churches. I've pastored two. There are problems in church, are there not? And here's a church that doesn't have any problems. Jesus is not finding anything wrong with them. So it is possible to be that kind of church, folks. But let me just stop for a moment. Look at what they're going through to be that kind of church. Poverty, persecution, and blasphemy from these Jewish that Jewish synagogue that's going on there. So he's given them a rebuke. Now here's the exhortation. Here's what he's going to tell them to do in the midst of it. He encourages them to have courage. Don't don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He encourages them to have courage. He then goes on and he gives a prediction. 
Christ tells them that their suffering is only for a certain period. So he tells them, look, some of you are going to be thrown in prison. Some of you are going to endure some hardships, but it's only going to be for ten days. Now, there's a lot of views concerning the ten days. I really don't want to get into that. Again, you know, all of the big prophecy gurus try to figure out what every little point means. If you're just an average reading, reader reading this, you're not really going to be concerned with why ten days or what specifically are ten days, ten years, or is it ten centuries or whatever. That's not the point. If you're an average reader, this is who's getting this book. What comes to your mind is, is Jesus is saying, hey, you're only going to be in there a short period of time for a certain period. And that's what he's saying here. You're only going to suffer for a certain period. So because of that, he tells them this. He encourages them to be faithful to the end. He encourages them to be faithful to the end. You know, there's a lesson there for us. All of us are going to go through difficulties of some type. Now, we're not, at this point, we're not facing this in our churches. But there may come a time when we will. Let's be honest. The fact of the matter is, is simply because this is America does not exempt Christians from having problems. Period. The Bible very clearly says if you are a believer and a follower of Jesus, you will be persecuted. That's just the bottom line. And so, here you are. You may be going through problems and you're wondering, man, am I ever going to get through this? Am I ever going to get through these difficulties? It's just one thing after another. Here's what I want you to understand. Here's the implication from the text. It's only for a certain period. I can't tell you how long that period's going to be, but we know at some point it's what, folks? It's going to end. That's the bottom line. And so the encouragement then is, you just keep persevering. You keep being faithful. You keep progressing on in your walk with Christ. Now, here's what I've noticed with American Christians, because I've seen this many times as a pastor. I'll just be very frank with you. We have bought into a lie as a church, as American Christians. You're saying, what do you mean? What are you talking about, George? Well, one of the big lies that's going around in the North American church right now is the prosperity gospel, that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. Let me just go ahead and say what it is. It's really a lie that says God wants you to be wealthy, because if you're wealthy, you can take care of your health. That's a lie. It's a damnable lie. The fact of the matter is, nowhere in the Bible does he promise you that. If anything in the Bible, he promises you're going to have a hard time. Period. Now, you say, well, we don't hold to that here. We're a different type of church. You're right. We're a different type of church. But we have bought into a subtle form of that lie. And here's the subtle form of that lie. Because I serve you, Jesus, and I love you, Jesus, things should be great in my life. And that's the lie that we embrace. As long as I'm serving you, Jesus, everything should be okay in my life. Now, here's what happens, folks, because this is reality of life. And this is what I've noticed is that when something happens bad, when a loved one gets tragically taken, maybe by cancer, maybe in, in, in an accident or something, or maybe somebody loses a job, and that happens a lot around here, doesn't it? Whenever, or, or maybe there's some kind of problem or a fire, I mean, some kind of crisis happens. 
Because we've bought into that lie that says, well, if you, as long as you serve God, everything's going to be okay. Here's what I've seen happen. Why would you let this happen to me, God? And we get angry with him, and we turn our back on him and leave the church. I have seen that happen over and over and over again. Why? Because somehow we have communicated a lie to each other. That if you're serving Jesus, and if you love Jesus, and you walk with Jesus, everything's going to be okay. My friends, that's not the message of the New Testament. The message of the New Testament is, times are going to be tough. This is going to be hardship. And you be faithful till the end. And that's why he gives these promises. Because every one of the church has a promise. And it always starts off the same. To him who overcomes. What does that mean? To him who perseveres. To him who overcomes the difficulties that he's facing. Here's the promise I give you. We've got to hold on in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the stuff that we're facing. Bottom line. We've got to reject those lies that we're holding on to. We've got to reject them. So he's saying here, be faithful to the end. And here's the promise he gives. Christ promises the faithful eternal life. Christ promises the faithful eternal life. Look with me at verse 10. Look at what he says there. That you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That is a picture of what? That when you go to heaven, he's going to give you a crown? He may do that. That's really not the emphasis. Don't be focused on getting a crown. Be focused on the reality that you're going to live forever with Him. That's the emphasis here. Even in spite of hardship, have a hope. Have hope beyond your hardship. In fact, let me just say this. The problem I have with prosperity gospel, it focuses on this life being too good. And here's the reality. God doesn't want us to get comfortable with here. He wants us to have a longing for where? later on with him. That's reality. That's reality. That's what the message is. And so he's saying, you know, you be faithful, and I'm going to give you eternal life. Now here's the promise. Here's the exhortation. We are called to acknowledge what the Holy Spirit reveals to us. So every one of the letters he says this very same statement. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So look, if you're listening, if you're wanting to hear from God, if you're spiritually discerning is what he's saying here, Pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is revealing to you from this passage. Pay attention. Apply it to your life. Why? Here's the promise. Those who persevere in their faith will not experience what? Eternal death and hell. Man, what a promise. You're not going to have to worry about what, what he refers to here as the second death. Now, we already know what the first death is. All of us are going to experience that unless Jesus comes back. What's, first, what's the first death, folks? Dying. Physical death. The second death is a spiritual death. What is that? Eternity in hell. Separation from God. Torment and suffering for eternity. And here's the promise. If you hang on, if you persevere in your faith, He gives you a promise. You're not going to have to worry about that. You're not going to experience the second death. Bottom line. Bottom line. Now, that brings us to the end of this letter. 
Let's, let's close our time in prayer.